Welcome to the Gospel in Lagos, the sermon podcast of City Church Lagos. We hope this sermon answers the doubts or questions that you have about the gospel, its relevance to your life, and the ever-evolving culture around us. Our vision is to see the city of Lagos and beyond renewed by the gospel, and to make that happen, we need your support. You can do this by rating this podcast, following us, and giving through the Give tab on our website, citychurchlagos.com. Thank you for your generosity. We pray this sermon impacts you positively with the gospel. Good morning, church. Our Bible reading today will be taken from Ezra chapter 6. Reading from verse 13 to verse 22. I will end the reading by saying, This is the word of the Lord. Please respond with thanks be to God. Then, because of the decree King Darius had sent, Tatanai, governor of Trans Euphrates, and Shethabozani and their associates carried it out with diligence. So the elders of the Jews continued to build and prosper under the preaching of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah, a descendant of Edo. They finished building the temple according to the command of the God of Israel and the decrees of Cyrus, Darius, and Artaxerxes, kings of Persia. The temple was completed on the third day of the month Adar, in the sixth year of the reign of King Darius. Then the people of Israel, the priests, the Levites, and the rest of the exiles celebrated the dedication of the house of God with joy. For the dedication of this house of God, they offered the hundred bulls, two hundred rams, four hundred male lambs, and as a sin offering for all Israel, twelve male goats, one for each of the tribes of Israel. And they installed the priests in their divisions and the Levites in their groups for the service of God at Jerusalem, according to what is written in the book of Moses. On the 14th day of the first month, the exiles celebrated the Passover. The priests and Levites had purified themselves and were all ceremonially clean. The Levites slaughtered the Passover lamb for all the exiles, for their relatives, the priests, and for themselves. So the Israelites, who had returned from the exile, ate it, together with all who had separated themselves from the unclean practices of their Gentile neighbors in order to seek the Lord the God of Israel. For seven days, the celebrator with joy the festival of unleavened bread because the Lord had filled them with joy by changing the attitude of the king of Assyria so that he assisted them in the work on the house of God, the God of Israel. This is the word of the Lord. morning everyone. Let us pray together. Lord, we thank you. It is those that you want to destroy that you refuse to send your word to. 
And so we are grateful that you send your word to us. But we also understand according to scriptures, Lord, that it is those that you want to destroy that you hide the meaning of your word from. And so, Lord, we plead with you for clarity. We ask, oh God, that your word will be exposed to us, oh God, in the name of Jesus. We ask, oh God, that you help us to respond the way we ought to. We ask, oh God, that by reason of this sermon, we will touch you, we will experience you, and our lives will not remain the same again. In Jesus' name we pray. Good morning once again. Um, in case you're worshiping with us for the first time, my name is Tomi Olariwaju. I'm one of the guys on the preaching team, obviously. <laughs> Um, so in this series, um, the gracious turn around, and um, what we are doing is walking through the book of Ezra uh, systematically, just taking few verses uh, at each point and just trying to see what God has for us in these in this, um, verses. And um, it's under this series that we are then dealing with this sermon that we've titled, What God Calls Sacred. All right? All right, it's time. What God calls sacred, what God calls sacred. I'm just going to say what I'm trusting the Lord to do with this sermon in our lives. What I'm trusting the Lord to do is to actually deepen our understanding of what sacredness is and so that we can understand the implications it has for our lives. Because as a generation, we are not people that are very, very particular with sacred things. Sacredness or the sacred many times are things that we identify with spooky or weird. And our generation loves to be cool, so weird is not something we want to associate ourselves with. Or maybe for you in your mind, when you hear the sacred, what comes to your mind is something that is cultish. But what I'm going to try and show you in the scriptures today is that the Christianity, our religion, does, I mean, our religion plays a big role. Our religion is, makes a big deal out of the sacred. Our religion makes a big deal out of the sacred. And when you think about two reactions that we normally have towards the sacred, there are two negative reactions we usually have towards the sacred. The first one is ignorance. The second one is arrogance. Ignorance says, I don't know about the sacred. Arrogance says, I don't care about the sacred. Are we together? Ignorance will say, I mean, I don't know enough about it. That is why I'm not actually dealing with it. Arrogance says, whether I know enough about it or I don't know enough about it, I do not care. And that's my response to it. And what the scripture is going to show us is this, that whatever your position is, whether ignorance or arrogance, it is dangerous to be in any of them. So talking about ignorance, there was a time in the Bible, in the book of 2 Samuel, when David was going to bring the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem, and he placed the Ark of the Covenant on a cow, on a, on, on a bull, whichever one. And then the animal actually tripped, and the Ark of the Covenant was about to fall. And the Bible said, Uzzah, do you remember him? Uzzah stretched his hand to actually help the Ark of the Covenant. You see, what happened was this. Uzzah was ignorant of the fact that his own sinful hands were not as sacred as the ground the Ark was going to fall on. And because of that, God judged him and killed him. Ignorance is dangerous when it comes to dealing with sacred things. But so is arrogance. In the book of Leviticus, the sons of Aaron, Nadab and Habiu, went before the presence of the Lord to offer strange fires to him. The Bible says that God, fire came out from the presence of God and burnt them. Arrogance is dangerous when you are dealing with sacred things. And then you can then say, Tommy, I hear you. I mean, but all of that is Old Testament. You see, the God of the New Testament, the God of love, the God of, um, 
The God of blessings, the God that just wants to bless, that just wants to be my teddy bear, snuggly bunny, and all those kind of things. He doesn't do any of those things. You know, he doesn't kill anybody because of sacred things. Why? Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, 27 to 30. So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, this is Paul talking about the communion, will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink what? Judgment on themselves. That is why many, of, many among you are weak and sick and a number of you are falling asleep. First and foremost, this is the New Testament. This is Paul talking. Secondly, when he says some are falling asleep, Secret things don't give you naps. Are we together? So this is what is happening. You see, you not know the way the Bible tries to be modest about certain things. So if a man is sleeping with a woman, they will say, and the man knew the woman. You understand? So this is what is happening here. This means death. Sleeping here means the reason why some people in the Corinthian church were sick, the reason why some of them were dying was because they were not handling sacred things well. Whether due to their ignorance or due to their arrogance or due to a combination of both, the way you handle sacred things has implications for your life. Needless to say, as I said earlier, that a lot of things in Christianity will not make sense if you don't understand the place of the sacred. Laws will not make sense. Marriage will not make sense. Family will not make sense. What God has predestined for those that belong to him, none of that will make sense if you don't understand this topic of sacredness. And that's what you find in the text before us in Ezra chapter 6. But just a quick summary to Ezra chapter 1. So what happened was the children of Israel um, were in Canaan land and they sinned against God and God sent them on exile through Babylonians and the Assyrians. After a period of time, a particular king named Cyrus comes on board, and Cyrus decrees that everybody should go back to their, to their homelands and build temples. And that's what you find in Ezra chapter 1. Just to remind us, in Ezra chapter 1 verse 3, the Bible says, any of his people among you, this is Cyrus talking now, you may go up to Jerusalem in Judah and build the temple of the Lord. So everything we have been discussing for the past six to eight weeks is really about the plan, the program of God to actually lead to a building of the temple. That's why you get to Ezra chapter 2. You find out that the people eventually gather. They pick certain people and they're on their way to Jerusalem. They get to Jerusalem in Ezra chapter 3. They build an altar. They lay the foundations to the temple. And in chapter 4, we started discussing the oppositions that they faced. All the way to chapter 5, all the way to the beginning of chapter 6, all these oppositions was to prevent them from getting to a point where they can build a temple to the Lord. Are we together? This is where we have been going all along. Everything we have discussed has led us to this point. Now they have built the temple. Now they have dedicated it. This is where the goal is. This is where we are going. But we read in Ezra chapter 6, verse 19 and 22. I'm combining together. After the dedication, on the 14th day of the first month, the exiles celebrated the Passover. For seven days, they celebrated with joy the festival of unleavened bread. Because Lord, I feel them with joy. You can read the remaining at home. Now, and now if you're like me, you should be asking yourself questions. Because normally, you would expect, okay, here's the thing. If you're Nigerian, or probably, I mean, you are Nigerians, um, or if you're a Yoruba person, there's something we do. When you build a house or you buy a car, we will say, 
Share a new wedding. You know what that means? Won't you wash it for us? And the way you wash things is by throwing a party. And if you are here, you've not washed your car. And you're wondering why you're constantly visiting the mechanic. This is the reason why. Are we together? <laughs> Will you wash it for us? And the way you wash things is by throwing a party to actually wash it. However, in the text, that's not what it says because the Bible understands the difference between throwing a party and having a festival of feasting for food. There's a difference. They are not the same. And so what we should be asking ourselves is why is it that after the rebuilding of the temple, they didn't just throw any random party. They actually engaged in the Passover and then they ate, celebrated the feast of the unleavened bread. What you find out according to scripture is this, that every time the children of God are in a place where they are going to meet with God, every time they pass a milestone when it comes to their contact with God, most of the time what they do is engage in sacred festivals. If you go back in time, if you go back just a little bit in Ezra chapter 3, verse 3, 4, and 6, when they actually built the altar, the Bible says, despite their fear of the peoples, now at this point, they just got to Jerusalem. And all they wanted to do was just build the altar. That's what they were doing. They did not even build the temple yet. Despite the, their fear of peoples around them, they built the altar on its foundation and sacrificed burnt offerings on it to the Lord, both the morning and evening sacrifices. Then in accordance with what is written, they celebrated the festival of tabernacles, not just a random party, with required number of burnt offerings prescribed for each day. On the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, though the foundation of the Lord's temple had not yet been laid. So, normally, what is supposed to happen is that they're supposed to celebrate that festival after the temple has been built. However, they could not wait. They just couldn't get, they wanted to get to that place where they're going to celebrate that festival. By all means, this reminds you of those times when we were growing up, and mommy will buy Christmas shoe in August. Well, you can't wait. You want to wait. You wait to sleep. They'll come and remove it from you. This is what's happening here. They want to get to the goal. They want to get to the point. The point where they are going to celebrate the sacred meal in the presence of the Lord. But if we go further back in time, this has happened before. In Exodus chapter 24, the children of Israel are on Mount Sinai, and God tells them to send representatives. So he sends, and so they send Moses, Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, and the 70 elders of Israel went up, verse 10, and saw the God of Israel. Under his feet was something like a pavement made of lapis lazuli, as bright blue as the sky. But God did not raise his hand against these leaders of Israelites. They saw God, and they did what? They ate and they drank. This was the point where they were meeting with God. But what you find there again is that people gather together to feast and eat a certain kind of food in the presence of God. But you also find it again when Solomon builds the temple. In 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 65, it says, So Solomon observed the festival, brackets, that festival was the feast of tabernacles. At that time, and all Israel was, and all Israel with him, a vast assembly. People from Lebo Hamath to the Wadi of Egypt, they celebrated it before the Lord our God for seven days and seven days, 14 days in all. So you find again, it seems to me that there is a pattern. There is something that is occurring constantly when God meets with his people. And the pattern is this. That is the pattern of God's sacred people taking God's sacred meal in God's sacred place. Let me say that again. The pattern is that of God's sacred people taking God's sacred meal in God's sacred place. Even though the expressions of the pattern might differ according to time. You find that? Can you, can you find the table? Can differ based on the times that you are in. But the pattern remains the same. In Exodus 24, the people is Moses, Aaron, and 70 elders. In, and the meal is the food that they ate in the presence of the Lord. 
um, the sacred place is Mount Sinai. We find the same thing. It's Frank, in First Kings chapter 8. Solomon and the people of Israel were the sacred people. The sacred meal was the Feast of Tabernacle. The sacred place was the newly built temple. And then you find it in our text. In Ezra chapter 6 from verse 19 to 22. Priests, Levites, exiles, returnees, and everyone who had separated themselves from idols were God's sacred people. The sacred meal was the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. God's sacred place was the rebuilt temple. It seems to me that God is trying to show us something. That the goal of all of these things is sick. The goal of everywhere that we are going, all the things, all the journey we've been making through the book of Ezra is sacredness. Is sacredness. This idea of God's sacred people eating God's sacred meal in God's sacred place. And again, if a Bible scholar, if a Bible student, one particular incident should be occurring to you right now. It has happened before. That was the pastor right from the beginning. In Genesis chapter 1 to chapter 3, you find God's sacred people. Can we have it? God's sacred people, Adam and Eve. God's sacred meal, the trees in the garden, and the tree of life. In God, eating God's sacred meal in God's sacred place, the garden of Eden. This has been the plan all, plan all along. Sacredness has been always been the goal. Sacredness is where God is leading his people to. The question then is this, what is sacredness? What exactly does it mean? I'll just say this. You see, sacredness is like love. You can't define it, you only just feel it. You only just see the effects of it. But how do you define the fact that something is sacred? We don't know. However, the question still remains, how then do we determine what is sacred? How, does, how do things become sacred? What happens when something is sacred? What does it mean for something to be sacred? So an example is this. So just to try and help us understand better. This lantern can become sacred if five of us decide that it is sacred. If five of us just say, this thing is sacred to us, that's what makes it sacred. Here's what it means. Sacredness is not innate in anything. Sacredness is a status that is bestowed upon things. Are we together? There is nothing in and of this lengthen, there's nothing in this lengthen, in and of itself, that makes it sacred. It is sacred because the status was bestowed upon it. Another analogy that might actually help us. You see, sometimes last week I was with, um, we were together, staffs in, in, in church, church staff, and then we're watching a movie together. Yes, we do that some of the time. Um, and the, the, the movie was about Michael Jordan and, um, and the deal he made with Nike. And, um, and really, the person that made the deal was his, was his mother, Deloris Jordan. And she was trying to convince the salesperson that, hey, for, for every shoe that is being sold because Michael Jordan wore it, let Michael Jordan take a cut, a percentage of the thing. And every modern place say, amen, right? Like, it just makes sense, right? But the person was like, oh, no, 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 no. That's not the way we do it. What we do is we give your guy a couple of, a couple hundred of thousands of dollars and let him just, he's happy, we're happy, everybody's fine. That's not the way we do it. And the mother kept on insisting, no, he has to have a certain level, a certain percentage from the sales of this thing. And then she, she, gets, she said something that was really, really famous. It's really a great, a great quote. She said this. Can you just say it? She said, a shoe is only a shoe until my son steps into it. The garden of Eden is simply a garden until God steps into it. The temple is simply a building 
until God steps into it. You as a Christian, you are nothing until God steps into your life. Are we together? A shoe is only a shoe until my son steps into it. So here's what I'm saying, guys. Here's what God is saying to you. Until my son, Jesus, steps into your life, your life is ordinary and meaningless. You are just a shoe. Sacredness is bestowed. Sacredness is not in it. There is nothing special about you. Welcome to church. <laughs> but again, just, just if they begin to read the text, we begin to learn certain things about sacredness. One of the things we learn about sacredness is this. Sacredness demands boundaries. Sacredness demands to be protected. For something to be sacred, it has to be protected, and therefore there has to be boundaries that are protecting it. If you have been paying attention to what we've been learning in the book of Ezra, you already find it happening. In Ezra chapter 2, certain people were removed from the Levitical, from Levitical list. Why? Because we couldn't find their name. Boundaries. In Ezra chapter 4, the Bible says the enemies of the Lord came to actually join the people of Israel to build the temple. They said, no, you can't join us. Boundaries. We are God's sacred people. But you also then find the idea in Ezra chapter 6, from verse 20 to 21. We find it there as well. The priests and Levites had purified themselves and were all ceremonially clean. Um, let's just move to 21. So the Israelites who had returned from the exile ate it, that's the Passover, together with all those who had separated themselves from the unclean practices of their Gentile neighbors. That is, those that didn't separate themselves from the unclean practices of the Gentile neighbors were not a part of this. Sacredness demands boundaries. Sacredness demands that profanity should be taken away from it. This is the reason why Adam and Eve were sent out of the garden after they ate of the food they were not supposed to eat. The Bible says God placed a flaming sword, a cherub, to protect the way to the tree of life. Why? Sacredness needs to be protected. Sacredness demands boundaries. It works itself out even in our society. The order we enjoy in society is sacred. Anything that attempts to defile that, we send it somewhere. What do you call it? Prison. Why? Because order needs to be protected. Order needs to be protected from profanity. And even in those prisons, if you find somebody that is still willing to disturb the order of prison, what do you do? You send him to solitary confinement. Why? Order, sacredness, needs to be protected because sacredness needs to be protected. That is why God gave the law. The law is not there to restrict you. The law is there to protect. Why? Because sacredness needs to be protected. If you miss this idea, all of God's laws to you will become burdensome. All of God's laws to you will be like, why is just like a grumpy father? Just like, why shouldn't you go out by 7 p.m.? Because I said so. That's not simply the reason. It's because you are sacred. And sacredness needs to be protected. And in fact, think about it. When there is nothing, when there, when, there is, when there is nothing to protect sacredness from, there is no need for the law. Think about heaven. Have you ever thought about it? There are no laws in heaven. Why? Because there is no profanity to protect sacredness from. In Revelation 21, the Bible says, nothing unclean shall be found there. Because they've already packed all uncleanness and they put them in the prison called hell. Sacredness needs to be protected from profanity. Secondly, we're going to get to the implications, the implications of this for our lives. I want to establish these things. 
a thing is only as sacred as what it symbolizes. A thing is only as sacred as what it symbolizes, as what it means. Therefore, if God is the most sacred being in the universe, whatever symbolizes him therefore becomes what? Sacred. Let us make what? Man in our own image, after our own likeness. Man becomes sacred because of whose image he bears. Or furthermore, if you are then a Christian, the Bible says, ye are amb- you are ambassadors. KJV, God bless us. You are ambassadors of Christ. You are representatives. You are symbols of Christ. And because of that, you are sacred. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19, it says, Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit? Who is in you? Whom you have received from God? You are not your own. Pause, because I'm going to draw some implications from this. Your bodies. Now, many of us can imagine and think about the Holy Spirit residing in our spirit because it's spirit. But the word there, the Hebrew word for bodies there is soma, matter, material, body. That this body that you have, the Holy Spirit is residing in it. It is sacred because God, listen again, your eyes, your fingers, your legs, God is Paul talking, not me. God resides in them. And so you are sacred. If then you are sacred, then there has to be boundaries to protect you from profanity. If then you are sacred, profanity should not be found in your life. If then your eyes have been sacredized by God, we shouldn't find you using those same eyes to check out things you shouldn't check out on the internet. If indeed your hands have been sacred, and have been set apart to be lifted up in, holy, in holiness to God, we shouldn't find you using those same hands to change numbers at your place of work. In fact, sin for a sacred person becomes a profanity. It is an abomination. We shouldn't find sin in your life. The same tongues that have been sacredized by God that have been washed in the blood of the Lamb, the same tongue that contains God, that you're supposed to use to worship God, we shouldn't find you using it to defile and curse and backbite and gossip. It is not supposed to be so. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 15, do you not see that whatsoever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. What you use your tongue to can defile you. Why? Because Jesus assumes that you are sacred. That's why I'm speaking about defilement in the first place. What you do with your tongue defiles you. Sin, beyond the fact that it dishonors God, it defiles you. There is a you aspect to sin. When the Bible says, do not use your body to be joined to that of an allot. It's not just because, oh, God will be angry about it. It's because he says you yourself, you are defiling yourself. You are sacred and so profanity should not be found around you. Sin is an abomination. Why is sin a big deal for God? It's because you are sacred. And the fact that you don't know that is why you take sin with levity. Even the little white lies. You do not understand that you are sacred. Still on the idea that your body is the temple of God, of the Holy Spirit. I'm going to say something now that maybe my ruffle some feathers, maybe it's wrong, but I really believe it's true. Because it's just a direct implication of this. See, when you read the Old Testament, 
One thing you find out is the details concerning the temples, it's very, very detailed. It's almost to perfection. Um, impurities should not be found there. In the physical aspect of the temple itself, if your body therefore then is the temple of the living God, when your body doesn't function the way it is supposed to function, it is a profanity and an abomination. Sickness is a profanity when it comes to the idea of the fact that you're a sacred person. If there is any sickness in your life, it's not supposed to be there. There has to be boundaries. Because you are sacred. Now, I can give you Bible verses to try and show that, but I'm going to share an experience with you. You see, a um, couple of months ago, of course, I have my permission to, to, to share this story. A couple of months ago, my wife needed to do a surgery. And um, one of our deacons in church called me about three times. He would say, firstly, told me, how is she? I would say, she's great. He would say, how are you? And I'm like, I'm not sick. So why are you asking? I didn't understand. I was, I was going to understand very soon. When the day of the surgery came, lasted for a couple of hours, two hours in, they called me. I was in, I was in our room. They called me to the um, theater. And I entered, and they were going to show me certain things on the screen to just say, oh, here's what your problem is. Glory to God, it was treatable. So I was like, oh, okay, that's good. As I was going to turn to leave, I saw my wife on the table, and I saw all these strangers just round her. And she was just there, exposed, vulnerable. Something turned in me. That this is not supposed to be. This is wrong. This is profanity. They took her out when the surgery was done and she was still under the influence of the anesthesia and stuff. Now, I just want to say this. I mean, if you really know my wife, aside from the fact that she's um, probably one of the most beautiful things you will set your eyes upon in the 21st century, all right? Just throwing that out there. She is smart, witty, fierce, brave, full of life. And I saw this woman lying on the bed she couldn't even recognize me. That stayed with me for weeks. Sickness, guys, is a profanity on the sacredness that is your body. If you've ever had to deal with a relative or a family member that is sick and you knew them before and after, you understand what I'm talking about. That this is wrong. This is not supposed to be. Why do you react that way? It's because you know that they are sacred innately inside of you. This is not supposed to be. What I am trying to do today is to try and make you understand. Many of you have gotten comfortable with sickness in your body. You are just living with it. It is a profanity. It's not supposed to be there because you are sacred. You are sacred. You are a sacred space. We shouldn't find profanity there. Set boundaries. Protect that sacred space. Sickness is a profanity. Think about it. Even in the Christian faith, what is your justification? All the things we declare here on the pulpit, all the things we say, that sin shall not have dominion over you. What is the justification for that? It is because you are sacred. That's why we are saying that. 
What is your justification when you are praying? What is your confidence when you are praying that a generational pattern that has stayed with your grandfather, your father, and is now appearing in you, what is your own confidence that that thing will end in your own life? It is because you are sacred. That there has to be boundaries. This thing shall not pass this place. It shall not be transferred to my children. It is because you are sacred. So when we say pray against generational patterns, your confidence is this, that I am sacred space. I determine the boundaries. It will not pass me. What is your justification for praying against depression in your life or in the life of a family member? It is because they are sacred and you are supposed to set boundaries. Sacredness needs to be protected. Apart from the fact that man is sacred, I said a thing is only as sacred as what it symbolizes. There are other things in the Christian faith that symbolize great spiritual truths. One of them is marriage. Marriage is sacred because of what it symbolizes. Christ and the church. Family is sacred because of what it symbolizes. Paul said, I bow my knees to the Father under whom all the, all the families in, on earth are named. It is because of what it symbolizes that it becomes sacred. And if therefore marriage and family is sacred, it deserves to be protected. If indeed marriage and family is sacred, there needs to be boundaries set. And the question I believe God is asking you today is this. If the enemy, if profanity attempts to touch your marriage or your family, will there be an obstacle for him to overcome? Or is it just free reign? Have you set boundaries on your knees for your families, for your homes? But now that we're on the topic of family and homes, let's talk to men. Because yes, the Bible says man is the head of the home. I want you to do something, and I, I believe women have something to learn from this. I want you to do something. Everybody, close your eyes. We're not praying. Just close your eyes. Think about that person that matters to you the most or should matter to you the most. If you're a man, think about your wife. Don't let me remind you of that. And if you're a wife, think about your husband. That person you thought of is sacred. That person needs and deserves to be guarded. Open your eyes. Men, guard her. I wish everybody had their wife sitting beside them. So the woman can say, Shogo, have you heard? Guard her. Protect her. Guard her against that foreign woman on your screen. Guard her against that foreign ex that is shutting you up again. Guard her. Protect her. She is sacred. Guard her ultimately against yourself. You know you are sinful. You know you are impatient. Guard your wife from yourself. Guard your wife from your lust. Guard your wife from your impatience. Guard your wife from your irritation. Guard your wife from your not being too sensitive enough. Guard your wife from yourself. 
your role as men is to be priests that guard the sacred place. Adam's failure was not when he ate the fruit. Do you know that? Adam's failure was when he failed to guard the sacred place from profanity that stepped into it. Think about it. What is the serpent doing there in the first place? Talkless of a talking serpent. That should have been his hint. Animals don't talk. In Genesis chapter 2 verse 15, let's just go there. Genesis chapter 2 verse 15. The Lord God took man and put him in the garden of Eden to walk it and what? Keep it. Shama there means God. Adam failed in guarding the sacred place. That was why he fell in the first place. If you had prevented the enemy from touching her, nothing would have happened. That was why when God came, who did he ask first? He said, Adam, where are you? You are a priest, man. Guard your homes. Guard her from the enemies that attempt to touch her. Ladies, permit me to make an assumption on your behalf. I'm talking, to, I'm talking to some ladies and they, they all agree on this. I will illustrate this with a story, you see. One of my experiences. When I was dating my wife, I mean, I was broke. Technically, I'm still broke. In the grand scheme of things. The problem was, the person that my wife dated before me was a millionaire. And so imagine me, humble self. I like to say our first date, I spent my last 8,000 naira to take her out. The remaining was Gary. That was it. And then I asked her, why are you here? Why are you still here? Because I don't have anything to give you other than I love you. She knew what I was asking. She said, she told me, I don't need you for money. I can make that on my own and I will. I know, I know, I know. She said, however, I want safety. I want you to be my home. I don't need the money. Listen, even those women that are going about digging for gold, you know what I mean? It is safety they want. It's not, that's not the point. It's safety. Women want safety. Do you make them feel safe? Do you guard them? Or is your work a threat to them? Because you spend more time with your work than you spend with your family. Or is your phone, listen to me, your phone, is it a threat to your family? Are you guarding them? Are you protecting this sacred space? God have. I want to illustrate one more story. Again with my wife. When we got married, about two weeks in, we were in the room one night and she said, told me I am sorry. And I was like, why? She said, I am sorry I've not posted our wedding pictures anywhere since we got married. I was like, how is there a problem? I'm a lover, but I posted for both of us. Nothing. If you think you're hiding from people that you're married, I posted it. Everybody knows. And if you're on my WhatsApp, you know I stick up on reminding people that this is mine. This one is, this is my own. 
And then she said, when she asked me why, I kind of knew the reason why. Why? She said, why? She said, the people on my, again, I've asked for permission to share this story. The people on my father's side are quite diabolical. When they see happiness, they touch it. And I don't want them to touch us. So I'm hiding And I said, that makes sense. Very, very great stuff. Um, you were protecting me, you're protecting yourself. It's great stuff. But that's not what I said. I'm going to tell you what I said because that was, I think, God wants you to learn. And I'm paraphrasing at this point. I said, babe, when a child is born, a boy or a girl, he or she, ideally, supposed to be born into a family. Now, let's take the picture of the girl, for example. Her father is a priest over her and he is supposed to protect and guard her. But the same, but scripture also then says that a man is supposed to leave his father and his mother and cling to his wife. So, on the wedding day, something sacred is happening when the father takes the woman and walks up and says, take to the man. Many of us just think, uh, she just didn't to walk alone because that aisle is too long. No, it is symbolic. That I am no longer guarding and the priest here. He handed you over to me. I said, listen, you have been joined to my family. Not my father's family. Because the scripture says, a man shall leave his own father and his mother and cling to his wife. You've been joined to my own family. Nobody has jurisdiction over you except me. So if anybody is going to touch you, they will go through me. This is the point where I say that after I made that particular statement, I went to go and check if my fortifications were all right in case they actually come and attack. <laughs> you know. Because I know my wife, she can go and start boasting to them. You can't touch me, my husband. <laughs> Guard her. Guard your wife. Now switch it. Guard your husband. You are there as equal partners in that home. So yes, you also have a priestly role. And I think our mothers understood this. You wake up in the night and your mother's hand is on your head. She's guarding you. Guard your kids. There is nothing spooky about it. Your baby is not yet here. Lay your hands on your belly and guard that child. Because in a sense, it is there. Remember Hebrews chapter 7. The Bible said, Levi, still in the loins of Abraham came to Melchizedek. Are we together? He wasn't even conceived yet. See, he was in the loins. That child that you're expecting is already there even if you're not pregnant. You can lay your hands on your belly and guard that child. Protect them. You get home right now. When your child is asleep, don't wake them up. They need their sleep. Lay your hands on them and just say silent prayers. You are blessed. Nothing shall touch you. Maybe, just maybe, just maybe your child doesn't need to be grounded the 140th time. Maybe what he needs is for you to guard them. 
see many of you, you dropped the ball. Even though they've not caught you, there's profanity in your sacred space already right now. Push it out. Set boundaries. Set boundaries. But one thing you also find is that there was a sacred meal. And I said, remember that a thing is only as sacred as what it points to. Do you remember? A thing is only as sacred as what it symbolizes. In Ezra, the sacred meal was the Passover and the feast of the unleavened bread. But in the 21st century, in the new covenant, the sacred meal is what? The communion. That thing that we eat here is sacred meal. Jesus said in Luke chapter 22, verse 19 to 20, and he took bread, gave thanks and broke it, and gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup saying, this cup, listen, he pointed something physical to them. This cup is, you know, he didn't say symbolizes, just so you know. Is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. That communion that you see, that bread is the body of Jesus. When you take it, it is the body of Jesus. We've read already how something that is material can be infused with spiritual energy. It is possible that the sacredness of a thing is so big that the thing that is symbolizing it carries the power of that thing that is symbolizing. Jesus, his body is sacred. His presence is sacred. So when you have the communion, right there, it carries the presence of Jesus himself. I hope when you carry that bread, you're not pressing your phone. I hope when you carry that bread, your mind is not distracted. That what you are carrying is the body of Jesus that was broken for you. That thing signifies victory. That because that body was broken, your own sins have been paid for. That thing signifies breakthrough. That thing signifies that nothing can harm you because all the harm has come upon Jesus and he's still alive now. The reason why Jesus can be present with the bread is because death didn't win. He's alive. So that communion is sacred. Do not joke with it. When they bring it before you and they are saying, body of Christ broken for you. Don't just ask yourself, why are they saying these things? It is important because you need to know. It is sacred. There is sacredness with it. And so when you take that sacredness and there is profanity in your body, the two of them don't agree. And that's why some of them were dying. Because the profanity in them, there was no agreement. The question then becomes this. Which one of us doesn't have profanity in their bodies? Think about it. That at the time when you're taking communion, you're taking the sacred body of Jesus and you didn't fall down and die. Which one of us is not profane? Which one of us has not lost it this week, has not lied. 
has not hurt somebody intentionally. We are the ones that sacredness should be protected from. We are the profane ones. The meal, no one should come near it. But I have good news. I have good news. You see, because I've been talking about a kind of sacredness that needs protection. But there is another kind of sacredness that the Bible points to. It is not a sacredness that needs protection. It is a sacredness that you protect defilement from. Because that sacredness is potent. You find it in Leviticus chapter 6. Leviticus chapter 6 verse 24, 27. The Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron and his sons, these are the regulations for the sin offering. The sin offering is to be slaughtered before the Lord in the place the burnt offering is slaughtered. It is most holy. 27. Whatever touches any of the flesh will become what? Holy. There are two kinds of sacredness. There's the sacredness that needs to be protected from profanity. There's another one that if profanity touches, the profanity becomes the holy one. And so we then understand 2,000 years ago that the personification of sacredness stepped into our world and began to walk. The Bible said a woman with issue of blood that was profane touched the arm of his garment. And the Bible said, he said, virtue has left me. There was a sacredness that left Jesus and moved into the profanity of our body and caused healing in our life. You find out as well, the leper came to meet Jesus. He was profane. He said, if you will, will you make me whole? Jesus said, I will. He could have spoken. He could have said, go and be healed. He said, what? I am going to touch you. Because even if I touch you, your profanity cannot defile my sacredness. My sacredness defiles your profanity. My sacredness profanes your profanity. This is the confidence that you have. Listen to what Jesus is saying to you. There is no profanity that you have in your life. There is no addiction. There is no depression. There is no sickness. There is no pain that can profane my sacredness. Bring it on. I can handle it. That is what Jesus is saying. If you will just come to Jesus today and say, I'm going to touch you. I am going to touch you. What is the confidence that you have? That the highest profanity, which is death, met with the highest sacredness, which is Christ, upon the cross. Listen, and that profanity said, if I touch him, and so death touched Jesus. But he didn't just touch him. He said, if I can hold him. You need to understand the depth of spiritual revelation that are in, that are in some songs. Three days he died. On the third day, the songwriter said, he said, death could not hold him. He said, the grave, the wealth, the veil tore before him. He silenced the boast of sin and grave. He said, the heavens are roaring, the praise of your glory, for he is raised to life again. He has no rival. Your profanity is not his rival. They are not mates. They are not equals. God's sacredness can handle your profanity. Thanks for listening. If you found this sermon helpful, we hope you join us in the mission of renewing Lagos with the gospel by sharing it, rating this podcast and following us. These actions help us reach more people with the gospel. You can also connect with us on various social media platforms via the handle 
at City Church.